Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. Tonight's programme, History and the New Age, was originally broadcast in 1984. The feminine energy in the void, in the light, the lighted void, was looking above and found a hole. And she was looking through that hole and she fell down. Now there was an existing earth, yet there was not the fire of individuated mind, but there were creatures here that had feeling, but not yet the ability of clear thought and clear action. They only responded to their feeling, and hence that world was very watery, no real firmament. So many creatures saw this spinning light coming down to the earth, and they felt, oh, someone is coming, something great is going to happen. We must find a landing place, because it was all mud and water. Many creatures tried to go down to the bottom of the water to find firmament. Only one succeeded, it was the muskrat. It found the firmament and brought it up and placed it upon the turtle's back, and then the land became solid. So we say this is Turtle Island, and that was the first coming of the individuated mind, the clarity of mind, the clarity of all creation and creative power from the idea manifesting as form with this mother's landing, and all things come from her. And the atomic detonation is off. The first impression we get is a tremendous surge of heat comes off there with the coming along about a half minute as you heard. With a tremendous flash of light for just a moment that completely With the invention of atomic weapons, the world changed forever. History turned on nature and threatened to destroy it utterly. Before the bomb, nature could be treated as if it were no more than the stage on which history was played. Now nature's very existence came into question. Tonight's program is the first in a four-part series called History and the New Age. It explores the changed relationship of history to nature in the nuclear age and suggests that our very idea of history as a process finding its fulfillment in the future must now give way to a revaluation of both the past and the present. History and the New Age, Part 1, The End of History Written and presented by David Cayley in calling tonight's program the end of history, I mean to point up what I take to be the inevitable consequence of the global ecological crisis which is summarized in the image of the bomb. History in the modern West has essentially meant progress. Its goal has been imagined as an image of millennial perfection. Its meaning has been derived from its promise of fulfillment in the future. It is this future that has now been thrown into doubt. 
History has always depended on nature as its source of support. But so long as nature's limits had not been reached, this dependence could be overlooked. Now it stares us balefully in the face. The exhaustion of resources, the extinction of vulnerable species, and the pollution of air, earth, and water all speak painfully and eloquently of the discovery of these limits and suggest that the promise of future abundance can no longer assuage present dissatisfactions. The bomb, moreover, threatens actual extinction if present historical competitions are not set into some broader context of planetary welfare. History can no longer derive its meaning from a future which is clearly impossible. For this reason, I think it is necessary to speak of a new age, not in a millennial, sectarian, or utopian sense, but rather as a precondition for human survival. Time in this new age will have to be conceived not as the pursuit of the future, but as what Plato calls the moving image of eternity. And this throws us back on much older ways of conceiving time than we have been used to in modern societies. That this should be so is not surprising. All human development, both individual and collective, works by a principle of recapitulation. In entering a new phase of development, we reevaluate and redeploy the resources of our past. I propose, therefore, to try and make sense of our present dilemma by first going back to the aboriginal human conception of time in myth. Myth is a term whose meaning has been largely lost in modern societies, where it has been seen as embodying an account of reality which is inferior to historical or scientific truth. But I will argue here that myth embodies a greater truth, without which history would lack both shape and meaning. Northrop Frye, is University Professor of English at the University of Toronto. In the first place, a myth is a mythos, a story, a narrative. And uh, if you're attending a play of Shakespeare's, the story of that play is its mythos, it's, it's, it's myth. And if Shakespeare is writing a history play, for example, you find that he alters some details. He makes Hotspur and Prince Henry the same age, where historically they were, according to his sources, they were 20 years apart. Well, then we say that the story of the play follows history except for some poetic licenses. But that's got the whole thing backwards. The myth of Shakespeare's play incorporates historical material, but it twists the events around so that they confront the audience. You cannot listen to a myth without moving into a higher dimension of time than the purely sequential one. If you take, say, the crucifixion of Christ, that was a historical event because even if Jesus was not crucified, a lot of other people were. And as a historical event, it is simply part of the continuous psychosis that we know as human history. But as a myth, this particular crucifixion confronts us, confronts us with our own moral bankruptcy. Time is arrested at that point. You've got to stop and think of what you'd do with this. Myth reaches beyond what Northrop Frye calls the continuous psychosis of human history to reach a higher dimension of time. 
It belongs to the eternal present of the psyche, that timelessness of the unconscious on which Jung commented. As such, myth is present as the deepest dimension of experience in all societies. But it is only in aboriginal societies that myth still organizes all social life around a sacred history. Here myth is still truly lived. Joseph Brown is the author of The Spiritual Legacy of the American Indian and a professor of cultural anthropology and the history of religions at the University of Montana. Rather than having a what sometimes becomes a rather sterile uh, theology, as we know in our world, uh, one makes these realities in the context of the myth uh, living. They are brought to life. The listener is, is inevitably brought into the uh, mythic uh, themes uh, because in these cultures uh, uh, the understanding is that in telling a, a myth, that is a myth of creation, for example, one is actually participating in recreating creation. It is happening there and then as the myth is, is being told. It is a part of their being. It is uh, continually lived. And uh, all experiences of everyday life inevitably are interrelated with uh, the mythic themes. Furthermore, uh, the language uh, has to be taken into account here. Primal languages are very special in that uh, words are thought of as being sacred. The source of life is thought of as the breath, which comes from the center of one's being, from the area of the heart, indeed. And so since words are conveyed uh, by breath, words take on a sacred sense. And this lends import to the mythic uh, narration. In telling the event, uh, the reality is, is really present there. Uh, we tend to think ourselves in, in dualities. We uh, segment, segment and we, we fragment our, our experience. But in the primal uh, traditions, peoples are able to have an immediacy of, of experience uh, without going through these dual, dual kinds of processes that we do. The term dual here refers to the subject-object split with which history really begins. Before that, humanity lives in what Mercia Eliada calls the paradise of the archetypes, when time, as he says, is recorded only biologically without being allowed to become history. Before the fall into history, human being is experienced as a manifestation of the one being, which is all life. Joseph Brown. Throughout all these, uh, these traditions, there is this uh, presiding uh, vision, one might say, of uh, reality which is at the center of all uh, forms of manifestation, whether it is, as we say, uh, animate or, or inanimate. There is this, uh, this ultimate thread of, thread of life, however it might be termed, and it is that thread, indeed, that binds uh, all manifestation uh, together and which speaks of this principle which is uh, imbued in all phenomena and which uh, the human person, uh, it is his or her center, just as it is the center of the, the animal beings whom the people hunt and so on. And so this, uh, this leads to a unity of experience, I think is the best way of, of putting it. 
It is not, f not fragment. Everything is bound together with this uh, thread of the sacred, you might say. Non-historical societies do not lack a sense of time. They lack a sense of history, understood as an irreversible sequence of events which is aimed like an arrow at the future. Instead, their orientation is toward the past, where time is continually renewed by the reenactment of creation. Raimundo Panicar is a Jesuit priest of mixed Spanish and Hindu background a scholar of international reputation and a professor of comparative religions at the University of California. I think with a little of imagination we can figure out what does it mean to live without the possibility of any kind of recording for the future. No books, no leaflets, certainly not technological gadgets, so that when my grandfather dies, if he has not given to me all his wisdom, that will be lost forever. He has not written down anywhere, except perhaps in my chromosomes. Uh, so that uh, I live really towards the, the past. That's why the creation myths have such an importance. That's why tradition is so uh, paramount. That's why to reenact the primordial acts and ritual is so fundamental. That's why we live more uh, towards the past and the elders have the primacy than towards the future. Time in that form of consciousness is totally interiorized. So time is not a, a, a runaway surface where we slip towards the future or seeing the past. Time is not a Newtonian box like space where we move and breathe and, and, and unfold all our uh, possibilities. Time is just the very stuff of my own being and of reality. And this time is seen mainly, that's my second point, in parameters of the past. And the past is only past in as much as it is living and accumulated in me. That's why I do not experience time as the unknown, the danger, that which is to come the parousia, the kingdom of God that has to come, all this is absolutely un, unimaginable to primordial man. Time is that which has been enriching and accumulating in me, so that time is neither something external, not something unknown, frightening, a, a kind of uh, foe or something about which I have to be very careful. And the most blatant example on that is the attitude towards death. Death for primordial man is not at all frightening. More, I would say, death is not seen as from Plato to Heidegger, a modern man feels as something in front of you. For primordial man, death as it were, paradoxically as it may sound uh, to historical consciousness, is at the very beginning. So that the more I live, the more life I have, i.e., 
the more distant I am from death. That's why the ideal for primordial man is not immortality, but just a long life, as we could find still in the Bible and many other places, in the Vedas especially, that the dirgayus, mean the long life, is the, 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 the proof that you are not only blessed by God or the gods, but that you really live life to the full. Primordial man, by Father Panikkar's account, experiences time as a palpable, sensuous aspect of his biological being. All things have their time, and their time is part of their being. Then, writing is invented. Roughly 6,000 or 4,000 BC, 6,000 years from now, more or less, history begins, which is the beginning of, of, of writing. And we call it prehistoric is the man who doesn't write. And historic is the man who writes. And writing is more than just having a skill. is somewhat having the possibility of recapture time outside the recesses of my being. So memory ceases to be the greatest thing. And well, we can have libraries, bibliotheques, or whatever it is that will somewhat store that kind of crystallized wisdom. And then we begin to live unconsciously towards the future. We want to construct a kingdom, an empire, uh, to live for the future, to live for my children, instead of the children live for the parents. And that's why we sacrifice our children for the well-being of the kingdom of Assyria or Rome or United States or whatever it is. So it's, it's a radical shift in consciousness which evolves slowly, and I allow a period of uh, some 6,000 years, in which this historical consciousness develops more and more. And that's why even knowledge is fundamentally the possibility of prevision, of foreseeing the future, and thus also of mastering it, or manipulating it, or knowing what is going to happen. And the proof that you know well that would be an unthought idea in the prehistoric consciousness, is that you can predict. While before, knowledge, the criterion of knowledge was not that you could predict, but that you could understand, as we still say, that you stand under the spell of the thing which you claim to understand. The difference between these two forms of consciousness is illustrated by the biblical story of Jacob and Esau. Before their birth, these twin brothers struggle with each other in the womb, and their mother, Rebecca, asks God why it should be so. God says to her, in the words of the King James Bible, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. Esau becomes a hunter, while Jacob remains among his father's tents. One day, Esau returns from hunting, faint with hunger, and begs Jacob to give him some of the lentil soup he has prepared. Not until you sell me your rights as the firstborn, says Jacob, and the famished Esau agrees. And thus, concludes the Bible, did Esau despise his birthright. Raimundo Panikar explains what he thinks is the significance of this story. The entire Judeo-Christian tradition has uh, well, hallowed and praised uh, the prudence, the cunning, the intelligence, or even the loyalty, if you want, of Jacob. 
Jacob saw the future. Jacob was responsible uh, for the messianic ideal, if you want, and just was living towards the future. And living towards the future allows for any kind of and justifies the sacrifice of the present for the sake of the future. Esau, on the contrary, is the prehistorical consciousness which lives for the past and enjoys the fullness of life of the present. So that that kind of foolish act of mortgaging, of selling, of not caring for the future, for the sake of one single meal, in a moment of desire for that meal, to me is a powerful example, a powerful symbol of what does it mean. It means that I can die today if my day today is full. It means that I would not regret not to have fulfilled very many other things if today my time is decreed and comes. Is the experience of the fullness of the present. Is the understanding that that kind of plate of lentils or whatever it is according to the story that is now appealing to me, that is, when I speak to the Christians, would say the Eucharistic meal that fulfills all my promises and uh, brings uh, to the brim all my desires and after that I can say I have lived my life which is an act of, of love, of commitment of just not mortgaging my life for any kind of future but living it to the full in each moment No doubt in my mind now, after several years of studies on the matter, that the origin of the private ego and the separate identity is found in the phonetic and the specifically phonetic alphabet. Before the alphabet, information was identical with the person producing it or receiving it. Whereas after the alphabet, information gets extracted from language and extracted from the people who are using the information, so that there's a separation between what is called the body of knowledge on one hand and the knower on the other. This is Derek de Kirchhoff, the acting director of the Marshall McLuhan program at the University of Toronto, where he is professor of French. Like Raimondo Panikar, he believes that the origins of historical consciousness lie in the development of writing. But it is his view that in order to explain the distinctive features of modern technological society, we need to examine one specific form of writing, the phonetic alphabet as it developed in Greece. The reason why the phonetic alphabet is so important in our culture is because it's the first system of writing that enabled us to completely interiorize language. That is to make language available for use, for personal use, uh, for anybody who could read and write. 
You cannot conceive ideas in linguistic forms in your head unless you have a writing which represents those linguistic forms. And once you do this, you modify completely your relationship to the environment. That's what Havelock called a separation between the knower and the known. Once that separation between what could be known and the knower was possible, then the knower could reintegrate the information to work on it and modify it so that he could have ideas. He could become inventive. The environment became an object for contemplation and you would become a subject for the contemplating. That very strong differentiation between me and the other or me and the environment began. Now how would that translate into, uh, for instance, sensory terms and into uh, attitudes in, in daily life? In sensory terms, it would, it would be that you would see yourself in, in your mind, mentally, as a performer, as an operator, as an actor. You would see yourself as acting in life and you would see coming from that acting role a speech that would be your own, that you would control as yourself. You would see your body as belonging to yourself. So you would see these things. You wouldn't hear yourself anymore. You wouldn't f uh, feel yourself. You wouldn't touch or be touched. You would always have a visual dominance which would make you uh, an actor in a theatrical environment. And that's where theater comes from. The Greeks invented theater. Professor de Kirchhoff's argument about the importance of the specifically phonetic alphabet depends on the fact that its constituents are units of sound rather than of meaning. Thus, it allows meaning to be abstracted from context. Unlike hieroglyphic or ideogrammatic forms of writing, the phonetic alphabet has the flexibility of a pure code, a kind of linguistic DNA. It brings theater into existence by gradually transforming the participatory ritual of dance into an objectified spectacle. It began innocently. People thought it was just an extension of dance. In fact, it moved from dance to spectacles. It made people spectators instead of participants. And the way it did this is was by translating all the sensory projections of each individual spectators into forms of meaning. The dance gradually became symbolical. Instead of being participatory, it became signifying. The music became signifying. The words became signifying. The songs became signifying. As you know, military songs or erotic uh, singing environments such as jazz and pop music involve people completely into uh, certain directions for which they don't have to think. You don't hear a military beat and say, ah, this is an army and I'm going to join the army. You hear a beat that calls you to join the army. It's not the same. You see what I mean? Well, the Greek tragedy gradually moved away from this direct sensory impact and into more and more symbolization and meaning. So the dance began to mean something. The, the, uh, the, the chorus began to sing in terms of describing situation as opposed to living the situation. The actors began to describe how they felt about things instead of showing how they felt about things. And the whole of theatrical world began to take on more and more the values of signifying something else rather than doing that thing that they were supposed to signify. Well, that in itself is an enormous split between view, uh, seeing and participating, between the known, that which is shown to you, and the knower, that is the spectator who are looking at the theater. And in sensory modes, it simply remodeled the brains of the spectator into little theaters of their own. They began to turn their brains into little inner spaces. You see, we don't know how the primitive things we don't know whether people who have never been exposed to reading and writing 
have any kind of inner space of any sort. But we can suspect very strongly from the way they talk, from, the, from whatever we know of their culture and their folklore, that they don't have a very, very strong interiority. To have an interior space is to oppose it to an external space. To have an interior space is to imitate the model presented by a theatrical performance and put it in your head. There was a cost to the emergence of this individualized, self-reflective, objectifying consciousness. And this was the loss of connection to the older, mythic ways of knowing. The new individual stood apart. The chorus is the collectivity, the actor is the single person. The collectivity contains history as lived, not history as thought, history as myth, not history as logic or patterns of, of knowledge, history as knowledge. And therefore, the chorus incarnates a form of involvement with a culture which is atemporal. The single mind as an actor, having to make decisions, is going to experience a great deal of anguish. And that single-minded, in Oedipus, for instance, is represented as split. It doesn't know which is the best method of information processing for the better uh, outcome or the better issue of whatever problem is at hand. Uh, Oedipus, for instance, comes on the scene saying, I'm really clever. I've been formed by the best scholars of Corinth, and I'm going to solve this problem of yours. You know, it's going to be no problem at all. Just wait. I'll put my best wits to, to it, and we'll resolve this problem. Uh, he's got his brain. He's got a logical mind. For him, everything is evidence and history. Some historical events have happened in certain successions. Uh, Laius was killed at a specific place, and how many, how many people were there, and did you see them, and if you didn't see them, shut up. You know, and all these things, we want ocular proof and visual evidence of these things, and then we will know, and then we can have a guilty person, and then the plague will go. Well, it turns out that uh, he has not paid attention to the other side of his own being, which is Tiresias. Tiresias says, you think you're so clever and you see things so well, but you're as blind as blind can be. And I, who is blind physically, can see where you're going, and you are your, the person you're looking for. He says that at the beginning of the play. Of course, we know that Oedipus killed his father. But I mean, the idea is that the material, visual, flesh evidence of logic and history and the patterns of thought and so on are complete failings as far as the real nature of what's happened. So that Tiresias knows inside out. Oedipus is split. He is himself the one who did what he's looking for. He is himself. And at the same time, what prevents him from seeing that or knowing that is the impact of his visual, deducing, logical, thinking out pattern. He's just a smart aleck. And as a smart aleck, he gets his comeuppance. The most familiar interpretation of the Oedipus myth is Freud's. So familiar, I think, that I needn't repeat it here. But Derek de Kirchhoff holds that the Oedipus story has a general meaning for Western culture that goes far beyond Freud's restricted reading. The Oedipus story is a cosmic myth. It is not a personal, you know, sentimental uh, mom-and-pop type of thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a cosmic myth. It's the story of the Western world. The Western world has killed God, killed the Creator. Uh, it has raped the mother, Earth, Ge, Gaia, the mother. It's raped the mother. Uh, and Oedipus is you and me, man, Western man, with his incredible technology, with sophistication in every direction, its brilliant brains, its magnificent development of all kinds, have not, has not discovered yet where it's at. We haven't found out where it's at.
We have now traced the beginnings of the idea of historical time as an arrow pointing to the future and the establishment of an individual ego capable of objectifying and dividing reality in the service of historical goals. These developments are summarized in the idea of a transcendent human destiny which moves beyond nature and towards the future. This idea, according to Northrop Fry, emerges very clearly in the Old Testament of the Bible. Well, the Old Testament is fairly late, you see, and uh, I mean, even if you adopt the most impossibly early date, even if you assume that Moses wrote the first five books, that would still be late in the Middle Kingdom. I mean, the Old Kingdom of Egypt and Samaria would be gone by then. And uh, so the Bible sits on top of a very long historical development. And uh, it's already graduated from gods and nature spirits. And uh, uh, these channels are currents of energy with the natural world. And uh, it is afraid of what it considers idolatry, that is, attaching something numinous, something divine, to nature. And wants its readers to turn aside from that to human institutions and find their their God there. And that means that their language has to be a language of transcendence, of something that turns away from the order of nature. This turning away from nature has been considered by many to be the origin of our contemporary disregard for the substance and meaning of the natural world. Father Tom Barry who calls himself a geologian, in the sense of theologian of the earth, directs the Riverdale Center for Religious Research in New York City. He argues that the biblical tradition has been the source of what he calls the five transcendences, and that these have led to a progressive devaluation and degradation of the natural world. When a society takes the pervasive uh, sense of the divine or the sense of the divine is pervasive throughout the universe and throughout the natural world and constellates a transcendent divine personality and then sets up a covenant relationship you have the uh, a more legalistic approach but a person has lost that uh, biological sense of the divine manifestation uh, saturating the, the natural world and so uh, per, uh, the natural world tends to be desacralized in that context. First difficulty. Therefore, if it's desacralized, then it can be dealt with uh, uh, without the awe and without the sacred qualities that it needs to be dealt with. And then the, the second thing is the transcendence of the human. The human is spiritual. The rest, everything else is mechanistic in some way or else. Um, uh, not spiritual. Well, this is a further objectification of the natural world, which is progressive alienation from the natural world, which deprives the natural world of its basic dignity uh, in a further way. Then Western civilization comes to Descartes, which devitalizes the whole natural world and says that the natural world is just so much mechanics because there's only mind and extension. What's not mind is, is mechanism. 
So we get our mechanistic approach. That's the fourth transcendence. The, the third transcendence. The fourth transcendence is transcendent technology. Our technology enables us to transcend the basic biological law of limitation that every life form should have opposed life forms that limit each life form or group of life forms in such a way that no one or one group can suffocate the other life forms. But through technology, we, we can defeat that basic biological law, and there's, nature cannot stop us from overwhelming um, the natural processes. But then we have the transcendent goal or the transcendent uh, achievement that we are aiming at, which is this perfect world, this wonder world. And this wonder world vision is a transcendent goal. So that gives us, in our Western society, a sequence of transcendences which progressively lead to degradation of the natural world. This sequence of transcendences traces in summary form the history of religious ideology in the West, beginning with the idea of a covenant between God and his chosen people, and ending with a secularized vision of history as material progress. And according to Father Barry, it is this final idea of history's transcendent goal which has resulted in a degradation of the natural world which is now becoming irreversible. What I suggest is that the vision is a vision of wonder world that's ending up in waste world. The idea is that this vision of millennial perfection involves the grinding to pieces of the existing world, and that's the terror of contemporary processes, is that it cannot accept uh, natural spontaneities. It must bring everything under human, mechanistic, technological controls. And that is considered to be progress, no matter how disastrous it is. The idea is you can't stop progress. Well, what are we progressing to? We're progressing to a situation where the universe will be destroyed completely in its present condition and it will become progressively uninhabitable. It's already uninhabitable by a vast number of living forms that are being destroyed. In fact, there, it would be hard to find any living form that is not worse off and terribly worse off than it was before this age began, or and it could even go deeper into the whole impact of the human on the planet. And at this time, though, we have finally reached a state of ultimacy, because at the present time, this is at, in a condition where, where we are verging on the termination of the planet Earth, either by nuclear conflict or by technological plundering. Father Barry's idea that we have now reached what he calls a state of ultimacy brings us back to our starting point. Both the bomb and its variant, the slow death by ecological collapse, can now be seen as culminating events in a long, inexorable process. Derek de Kirchhoff, for example, 
believes the bomb to be the final expression of the culture of literacy. In my recent work on the phonetic alphabet and the bomb, because I think the bomb is the last product of the phonetic culture and the first product of a completely new culture, uh, I, th I discovered that the phonetic alphabet had a tremendously explosive tendency. Very explosive. It was a disintegrating principle. This constant pr potential of decontextualizing that the alphabet had in it, in it was a disintegrating process. You could disintegrate human speech, human knowledge, human understanding, human relations. You could literally analyze and analyze and analyze simply by always taking out of context whatever bit of information you had managed to gather and, and uh, hit upon. And so that the phonetic alphabet generates atomism. The very, f uh, in 150 years after the invention of the alphabet, the theory of atomism is born in the mind of uh, the, the Greek atomist, of which the most famous is Democritus. Democritus brought uh, the theory of the base elements, the atomos, that, that which cannot be any further divided, as the building blocks of nature, and of course from then on, uh, a whole series of theories which we're going towards the minute, the unbreakable in the universe. No other culture ever bothered with that sort of thing. It couldn't interest anybody else. It's only the alphabet that makes us think in terms of atoms, because the alphabet itself is an atomization of human speech. For Professor de Kirchhoff, the antidote to this atomization is the wired world of electronic media. Their tendency, rather than being explosive, is implosive. I'd like to point out something very important about electricity that most people don't seem to remember when they think of light and electricity. They think that electricity is some kind of substance that carries something or that carries itself from one point to the other at incredible speed, in fact, the speed of light. Little do they know that electricity or electrons in electricity don't move or hardly move. They do move. It's known that they move at a, you know, something like a, an, inch, an inch an hour or something like that, which is, I mean, really slow. But they push each other around at instant speed, which means that if you make an impact in Toronto, instantly the effect of that impact, not the substance itself, but the effect of that impact is felt in, in, in Manila or in uh, Shanghai. Because the electrons are pushing. Now, that touch, that is touch. That's the idea of touch. We're in touch with the world, thanks to electricity. And that's what I mean by implosion to be able not to have to cross space as a theatrical reality, but to conceive of the whole of space pushing in on you thanks to electricity. This kind of value of the environment bearing in upon each one of us and making us bear upon each one of us via that same principle is the implosive relationship of a planetary consciousness. Now, does that mean that we're going back to the you know, primitive man? Well, sure, a lot of our modes are going to resemble the primitive simply because our sensory patterns are by force going to not be exclusively visual anymore. I mean, the difference between civilization and any other kind of human arrangements is the dominance of the visual world that we have given. That's all. The moment you become touchy-feely again, you're primitive. And you've got to become touchy-feely in the world of, of electricity. So that we are recovering our senses. We're coming back to our senses. I mean, that's as, as clearly as you can put it. As we come back to our senses, we join again with the oldest wisdom of information processing, mythical structures of the so-called primitive. But I don't think that we are abandoning what we have acquired over the last 2,500 years. 
I don't think so. I think that when you are uh, imploding, you are not expelling anything. Implosion enables you to be everything at once. And that's what's happening. We are capable of being ourselves and being planetary. The brain is so unbelievably flexible and complex, so much more than any one of us has a clue about, that we, can capa we are capable of much, much more than our imagination right now gives us. Much, much more. In fact, what fails is our imagination, not our capabilities. With the split of the atom, which is something unnatural, and the proof that it's unnatural is that atomic waste cannot be reabsorbed, as any other kind of wound in nature can be reabsorbed and healed. The third type of human consciousness begins to become more and more important, and people begin to discover the fundamental value of the present. This is Raimundo Panikar again. Like director Kirchhoff and Tom Barry, he believes that the bomb acts as an absolute limit to any further projection of history into the future. In his terms, this means that the value which the future held for historical consciousness must now be accorded to the present. People begin to discover the fundamental value of the present. The present as the greatest weight of time whereby I'm constantly saying that time has to be visualized as a field and not as an arrow. That's why the three times past, present and future belong together. There is no the one without the other. And to think that uh, we can speak about the future irrespective of the past is clearly not the true, but even we cannot speak of the past uh, disregarding the future. And so this kind of field metaphor again to understand time to me is, is an enlightening one and it's in this kind of field metaphor that I speak of the trans historical consciousness uh, which we could see it in the, in the uh, enormous amount of uh, thirst I would say in the young generation for the present for the nung, for the now and not for later we would not like to postpone uh, the meaning of life and the fullness of life until we are 40 years old or I have the thousand bucks that I need or I have the three children that I dream or whatever, I want it now. This revaluing of the present is obviously something new as a general human possibility and yet it can hardly fail to remind us of Esau and his profound enjoyment of his bowl of lentils. What Father Panikar calls trans-historical consciousness captures the values of both historical and non-historical consciousness by rooting them in the present as the center of time as a field. Ewart Cousins, a professor of theology at Fordham University, means something similar by the term second axial consciousness, a term he has adapted from the German philosopher Karl Jaspers. In a book published in 1949 called the origin and goal of history. Jaspers described the first millennium BC as an axial period during which modern consciousness took its definitive shape. Professor Cousins has extended Jaspers' analysis by suggesting that we are now immersed in a second axial period in which a new planetary consciousness is being formed. His remarks which in a sense summarized tonight's program, 
also concluded. The basic dynamism of psychic evolution or psychic growth, individually and collectively, is recapitulation. It's going back to the past and recapitulating dimensions of past experience and bringing that into new syntheses. So it's a process of memory and creativity, I believe. Memory in a very deep sense of the term, as it were, conjuring up uh, from this eternal present, which is, I think, the ultimate structure of the psyche, uh, those elements that perhaps were not functioning very significantly in our uh, immediate uh, situation. Second axial consciousness should be characterized as global consciousness, taking the globe in the sense of the earth or the material substratum. And uh, uh, I think it's characteristic of first axial consciousness to separate itself from its roots in the earth, from the material substratum. Uh, we often say there's a split between matter and spirit in our culture, and we contrast very much with primal and archaic peoples in that respect. Uh, it's, it's axiomatic that the American Indians, for example, are in harmony with the earth, but it's more than that, I think. Uh, uh, I think it's the nature, in the nature of the phylogenetic or collective unconscious mythic dimension of our psyche to draw from material objects and to bring these material objects into our psyche, our sense impressions, in a way that releases an enormous amount of psychic energy and creativity. This is a remarkable facility, I think, we have, that we can do that. And that's one of the ways, I think, of being related to nature and to our roots that the, that the primitive peoples have been able to cultivate and sustain. That's through the mythic imagination, where material symbols and objects are not used abstractly, but very concretely. Uh, and uh, they uh, reveal a meaningful structure, a human, uh, cosmic, uh, ordered structure uh, in our relationship to the universe. So I believe that there is call for a kind of spirituality that's more intimately related uh, to material things and to the earth. That there has to be a recapitulation of the other side of the matter-spirit uh, relationship in a creative way. Now, I don't believe that the form of consciousness that is developing is merely a matter of the integration of the two, because I think there's a creation of something new. Uh, I think the, the creation of the newness is more important than the constitutive elements in it, in, in some sense. I think the horizon of our consciousness is expanding to engulf the whole. I don't think consciousness ever merely recapitulates and balances in its, I mean, sometimes it does, but in its best, it also creates. And I feel that, that we're in a situation that where the greatest challenge is creativity. Uh, but uh, I think it's very difficult uh, to live in a period of such great transition uh, as this because the forms of the new consciousness uh, have not yet fully emerged, I think. But I do believe we can see the direction uh, of it. And I think that's how creativity proceeds, uh, by a sense of being rooted in the resources, but then being sensitive to the possibilities.
The bomb is a terrifying reminder that other values, other aspects of human integration have to be paid attention to if we want to survive. The bomb is a survival medium. It's the product which suddenly takes a life of its own, a power of its own, and tells you more than you bargained for. It is a biological artifact. The bomb says the same thing to everybody. The End of History, the first of four programs on history and the new age. The series is prepared and presented by David Cayley and produced by Damiano Pietropaolo. Production assistants Bernie Lucht and Alison Moss. We've prepared a reading list to accompany this series, and if you'd like a copy, just write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. And you can get a transcript of all four programs on history in the new age by sending a check or money order for $5 to CBC Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Please make your check or money order payable to CBC Transcripts. Please don't send cash in the mail. And be prepared to wait six to eight weeks after the end of the series for delivery. Join me next week for part two in this series, the recovery of the primitive. I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>